Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign for you from scratch that you can run for your group starting tonight. And this week, that's the absolute truth, because before the show's done, we'll have the first night session pretty much, if not completely finished. As you know, this season we're building our campaign for the Fallout role-playing game, so if you need a copy of the rulebook, head over to your local game or bookshop, or if you don't have one close, you can pick up a copy in hardcover or PDF form from the Modifius website, modiphius.net. Before we build, I need to sort of rewind a bit. Last week, we did our episode on character creation, and my intentions were to lay out the characters that my group had created during that show. However, I'd actually written that episode several weeks before my session zero, and I'd forgotten to go back and put them in. So before we build this week, let me present the cast of characters I'll be talking about when we get into game recaps starting in January. We'll start with our returning gamers from last season. Aniston will be playing a Brotherhood Initiate, Gabe will be playing a Ghoul, Jim will be playing a modified Mr. Gutsy with a serious personality disorder, Max will be playing a Vault Dweller, specifically someone who'd done security, Scott will be playing a Survivor, and Tyler will be playing a Mr. Gutsy. We've got one new gamer thus far this season, and it's Jim's son Braden who will be playing a Brotherhood Initiate in our game. And yes, that means both of Jim's sons will be playing in the same game with him, which (laughs) eh, it's going to get interesting before it's all said and done, I can assure you. Also, I think I noted at one point that my group is playing through the adventure from the Fallout starter kit as a practice run to work through the rules and get some questions answered before we crank up the actual campaign. We ran a game three weeks ago, and then we ran again last week. The original plan was that the characters would be reset to their original creation for the new campaign, but after being asked to let them keep what we've got, I've decided to do that, which means my group is going to be probably somewhere around level five when we start playing the campaign we're creating for this show. I'm not going to do recaps for those sessions because I didn't want to add the task of keeping notes while we were trying to get the rules worked out. So the first session recaps will come sometime in January or early February when we get back together as a group and start playing what we're creating here. It also means we'll already have several weeks worth of built game for me to run, so plus for me. All of that being said, how does this impact you and your group? Truth be told, it doesn't. Here's how I've decided to handle it. We're going to build the campaign we were always going to build. Here's the difference. We're building it for you to run starting at first level. And I'll adjust the encounters when I run things for my group. That means when we do the recaps, you'll get an idea of how the encounters would run at a higher level. And for the record, if you're interested in following what my group has done step for step, the Fallout Starter Kit is available at your local game shop or online from modifius.net. You can also get it from their website in PDF form, which is what I did. Cost me about 10 bucks to get it. Also, I'm not getting any sort of payment or kickback from Modifius for plugging them. Much like it was last season with Pinnacle, I do this as a courtesy to them for us using their product on our show. One more point to make before we crank up the building process. I'm setting my campaign in my home area of St. Louis, Missouri. I'm doing that because I'm exceptionally familiar with a great number of fantastic locations I can use for the game. If you want to follow my lead and set your game in the same place, please do so. However, if you feel more comfortable setting the game in an area you're more familiar with, or if you want to leave it in the game's default setting of the Boston, Massachusetts area, again, please do so. All you'll really need to do is lift the encounters out of the St. Louis area and drop them into settings that make sense for your campaign. This is probably the only time I'm going to mention this for a couple of weeks, which is why I wanted to take the extra couple of minutes to mention it right now. 
And with that, let's build. We begin our adventure on a hot, muggy June morning. The exact date doesn't matter for the purposes of our program. I realize you might be questioning how things can get hot and muggy after years of nuclear fallout. For our campaign, the year is 2287. The bombs dropped in 2077. So we're at uh, 210 years since the bombs dropped. By now, we've started to swing from fallout clouds covering the Earth to those clouds dissipating in the now exceptionally thinned ozone layer, allowing for increased temperatures around the world. From a scientific standpoint, I'm probably off a bit, but this is a game, so let's take the leap of faith and run with it. We begin at the old Soulard Market, which is located on the southern side of downtown, about a mile, give or take, north of the brewery. For those unaware of the history of the market, it's a huge, mostly outdoor market where farmers and other various vendors can peddle their wares. There's also an indoor portion, but it's not nearly as large as the outdoor. However, in 2022, it tends to host vendors selling hot foods and cold products, so there's a lot of possibilities for scavenging in our game. Once the bombs dropped, the market took a beating. The steel pavilions were bent and some of them fell over, smashing multiple booths and parked cars. All across the block, remnants of Soulard Market's last day are present. Cars that have rusted to the point of being undrivable, the skeletons of those who couldn't get away fast enough when the explosions happened, fragments of brick, wood, and steel from the highway and city street overpass located right next to the market itself. Needless to say, the market has turned into a large pile of rubble. The actual building is still standing. When things fell over around it, they busted in the ceiling, but the outer walls still stand, like we mentioned moments ago. That makes the market a prime target for scavenging, which is why our group is all here. Now, we're going to start from the angle that our group members don't all know each other. It's entirely possible that some of them know and partner up with each other, but as a whole, the group doesn't know everybody. So this would be a good time for each of them to introduce themselves, describe what they look like, and state what they're doing right at that moment. Since each person or robot is there to scavenge, they're probably going to be a bit on edge. I mean, there's somebody else there trying to take what they went there to get. Let them take their time working out their potential issues. There's no need to rush into things if the role play is going well. However, if there's not a whole lot of role playing going on at all, or if it feels like it's coming to an end, it's time to bring in the first encounter of the campaign. The attackers are rad roaches. See page 350 for the stats on these little buggers. If you've played the Fallout 4 video game, you know how much of a pain in the butt these things can be. And for our purposes here, they're a pretty good opening act. Remember, we don't roll for initiative in this game. Initiative is a set stat, so folks will go in the order of their initiative. One other note, rate of fire does not dictate how many shots a character gets in a round. They only get one shot. Rate of fire determines how many additional bullets or units of ammo they can spend to add bonus dice to their damage. So a rate of fire of two means that the character gets one shot, but can add up to two dice of damage by using that many more bullets. If any of the group members get bitten by a rad roach, there's a chance they pick up some radiation damage. Let's take a moment to break down how this works, and it's on page 31 of the book if you want to check my math on this. Radiation damage is figured after any regular damage is rolled and subtracted. Radiation damage does something different than regular damage, because while regular damage takes away from your hit points, radiation damage lowers your maximum number of hit points. And if your maximum number of hit points would go below your current number of hit points, you lose those hit points as well. I keep saying hit points. It's health points. If I say hit points, I mean health points. Just play along. Anyway, this makes radiation damage a big deal. But 
Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, we have to do something. Check the character's armor for resistances, because they just might have some. It works like this. For each attack, you ignore the number of health points that your armor provides for that portion of the body it covers. So if you get hit in the left leg for six points of damage from a bullet and you've got a physical resistance of one, you'd only take five points of damage. If it's from the rad roach and you wind up taking another point of radiation damage, unless you've got radiation resistance on that leg, you're stuck with taking the damage. However, if you just happen to have a one for that leg, you'd ignore the point. One other thing to be aware of in combat are damage effects, since most of your characters will have some for one of their weapons or the other. Check out page 30 in the book for the 411 on those. The last thing I want to mention here is that if anyone rolls a 20 on their roll, a complication comes up. It does not negate a success, but it does bring something into the campaign that might not have been there before. For this fight, we could argue that a handgun jams, a melee weapon gets thrown or bounces off the floor after hitting, or someone slips and falls, making them prone. In the case of the rad roaches, I'd argue that a complication would cause them to flip over and be prone. Once the group has dealt with the rad roaches, they do have the opportunity to harvest them for meat. See the entry on the Rad Roach on page 350 to see how that's done. If the group took some damage, they're probably going to want to take a couple of minutes to handle some healing, so let's break that down a bit here. Again, I'm not going to get into this much detail for every combat, but since this is the first one, I figured I'd break it down for you. Moving forward, I'll only get into details on things that are new to the game at that point. And for those following along at home, the rules for healing run from pages 33 to 35 in the book. The first option would be for a character to try an intelligence plus medicine test to heal a number of hit points equal to their rank in the medicine skill. They can also spend action points to add a hit point to the healing for each action point spent. Crap, forgot to mention action points. Let me finish this, then we'll get to that. If the injured is a robot, the test is intelligence plus repair and the difficulty is two. Add one to the difficulty for each injury. Again, success restores a health point for each level you've got in repair, plus one for each action point spent. See page 35 for other methods that can be used for healing, since they're the types of things that are probably going to take more time than the group will want to take right off the bat. Radiation damage is different. The only way it can be healed is by the use of Radaway or some other chem or consumable that will take away radiation damage. So, if nobody has any of those, the character's stuck with it until they can get their hands on some. And if you happen to heal both hit point and radiation damage at the same time, take care of the radiation healing before you put the hit points back on the board. So, that's done. Let's do a quick primer on action points. As we begin this campaign, the players have no action points. They can accumulate them by gaining more successes than they need on a test. Here's the thing, though. They either need to be spent immediately, i.e. during the round they earn them, or they need to be saved for later. If they're saved for later, they go into a group pool of points, and that pool can never have more than six points in it. However, I'd argue for a larger group, you can increase that number, though I wouldn't go higher than two points more than a number of the players in the group. There's a variety of things players can spend their action points on, and they're detailed on page 18 of the book, so check those out. The GM gets to use action points as well. As we begin the game, you'll have one action point for each member of the group. This means that in the battle we just laid out, you can use action points the same way the group can to have the same effects on the group. Also, your action point pool has no cap, so you can keep baking on them for the duration of the chapter. However, at the end of each chapter, all action point pools reset. 
So when the next chapter begins, the players go back to zero action points in the pool and you go back to your original number. This system encourages everyone to use the action points rather than lose them. So, in that battle we just detailed, there's a pretty good chance both sides picked up some action points and an even better chance that some of those got used. This is where those white chips I mentioned last week would come into play since they're an easy way to keep track of the points without having to write everything down. Alright, so we're post-fight and the group has either treated their wounds or figured out how to move on as is. Since they went through all of that, you, you know they're going to want to go searching for some stuff. They're going to have to scrounge for some time, and we can describe the damage in the building however we want to. I mean, this building was basically destroyed 200 years ago. We can also safely say it's probably been checked over a time or two, so they're really going to have to dig through rubble to find stuff. But the idea is that this is the first time they've done this, so we're going to take some pitting on them and give them a few things. They'll get 10 rounds of 10 millimeter ammo, two packages of yum yum deviled eggs, two bottles of Nuka-Cola, one Radaway, and about $50 in pre-war currency. Sure, the pre-war cash isn't worth much as currency, but there are alternate uses for it if they're willing to be creative. No caps in here. Sorry, if there ever were any in here, they were taken a long time ago. The group will need to decide how to split things up, and you can always rule that certain characters found certain objects, which can cause issues with them as they determine who gets what. In fact, if you really want to see how the group is going to interact together, try this. Take a notepad, write down the item the character finds, and hand it to the player in question. Do this for each character that finds something and see what the overall response is. Now, since this could cause some friction between players, if you're not sure how your group will react or if you're concerned this will cause issues that can't be worked out, don't do it. I know my group fairly well, so it's something I might try. Give them all the time they want to search if you feel like it. Like I said, detailing the damage in that building can make things spooky, especially since they've already run into rad roaches. In fact, if you wanted to turn up the heat a bit, describe the sound of skittering as they're searching. They'll probably think it's rad roaches and will either pick up the pace on their scavenging or get anxious about getting attacked again. There aren't any rad roaches in here, by the way, but they don't know that. Unless, of course, they listen to this show. Also, you may be wondering, aren't we supposed to be making rolls for scavenging? Yes, you are. And in the future, we'll have you do that. I think for this first go around, we've put them through enough. So let's just give them the stuff. There's enough there that there should be for one person each in your group to find something. Maybe with something left over that somebody else can find. Just go with it that way. We're going to be a little generous. Once they've wrapped all that up, they get outside. They immediately hear what sounds like the voice of a young boy calling out. In fact, the voice sounds like it's calling out as it's running. It's still very light outside, so they can quickly turn to lock onto the source of the voice. It is indeed a young boy, no older than 10 years old, and he's calling out for, somebody help my mom, they're going to kill her. Now this boy is dirty. Soot or dirt covers just about every inch of his skin. His clothes smell like they haven't been washed in months. They're also covered in holes and stains. He's barefoot, but that doesn't seem to bother him, even with the heat the concrete is radiating. His hair is black, but it's hard to tell if that's his natural color or it's just from all the dirt. One thing that is clear, though, are his deep blue eyes. They're the one thing on him that are still full of color. When he gets to the group, he stops and leans over, putting his hands on his knees, and he starts sucking wind. Seems apparent he's been running for quite some time and or one heck of a long distance. His name's Jeff, and he reports that some bad guys have his mother cornered in the old deli they'd been living in for the past few weeks. He says that they want stuff, but we don't have anything. Just the clothes we're wearing, but they don't seem to believe her. 
He's genuinely afraid that the bad men are going to kill her and he'll beg the group to help them out. Now, there's definitely going to be group members who want to give this kiddo the smell test. By that, I mean they're going to be a bit skeptical of a child who's come out of nowhere and is begging for their help. Fallout doesn't really have a mechanic for what I lovingly refer to as the BS test. And if you need to know what BS means, well, that's what Google's for. So what we're going to do here is make a straight up perception test. It is, however, a zero difficulty test. <laughs> As we discussed back in the first episode, a zero difficulty test is an auto success, though the player can choose to roll for it in order to pick up action points. The downside to that is that complications can pop up. Look, straight up, Jeff's telling the truth. He's sincere and the love and concern for his mother is obvious in those deep blue eyes of his. So once the group agrees to help him and they darn well better agree to, he'll lead them west up the street towards the building his mother is in. If the group is hesitant to help out, let them know they notice a couple of guys that appear to be wearing road leathers headed west in the direction Jeff came from. Jeff will point them out, tell the group that those guys look like the ones who have my mom. And then he'll start crying. Now, the idea here is to not have the group engage the guys that they see. If they decide they want to, pull the Raider stats from page 386 and run the encounter. One thing to remember, though, is that the time they spend attacking these guys is time the other guys have alone with Jeff's mom. Jeff leads them west for a couple of blocks, then cuts to the south. Four blocks later, he brings them to a four-way intersection. Across the intersection from where they're standing, they see the faded sign for McGurk's Pub. However, the group's attention will be drawn to the building on the corner to their east. They hear a woman's scream coming from inside, and Jeff looks panicked. He begs them to save my mom. The front of the deli still has the old counter in place because it was basically an old-school iron cooler. The screams are coming from the back room, and they see the door, tucked in the corner behind the counter, standing wide open, so getting in isn't going to be an issue. Let's set the scene. The room is obviously the old storeroom for the deli. The windows have been blown out, but otherwise the room's still in decent shape. The paint's fading and peeling, but there are a couple of mattresses on the floor and a couple of buckets in a corner away from the mattresses. One mattress in the northwestern corner of the room has a woman on it, which is obvious from the screams. She's being held down by two men in road leathers. One has a pipe gun to her head while the other keeps telling her, Give us the stuff and we'll leave you alone. From the sound of the voice, these guys were probably on something at one point, but it seems like they may not quite still be on it anymore. As I mentioned a moment ago, the stats for Raiders are on page 386. Pull those up and run the combat. Now, there's only two of these guys, so this should not be a difficult task. However, there's something to take into account. There's a woman on a mattress in the middle of all of this. If they don't eliminate the men in a round, one of them will snatch her up as a hostage on their turn in the second round. At that point, it's going to be a negotiation. That'll be charisma plus barter, since the group would be trying to make a deal at this point. Now, if you've got a player who thinks they can pull off a headshot, let them do it. However, something needs to be taken into account. If they wind up with a complication, the woman will take a bullet and you'll roll for the damage location. I'd also argue that hitting her when she's on the mattress is also an option for a complication in the first round. If the woman gets hit with a shot, it shouldn't be fatal, though you can decide how serious it is. After all, you may be more twisted than I am. I don't know. Post-battle, the group has the opportunity to loot the dead bodies for their gear. If the woman was hit, she calls for Jeff, who comes in, pulls up a piece of the floor near the other mattress, and pulls out a stim pack, which he uses to heal her. She takes a moment to catch her breath before thanking the group. Her name is Lisa, and she apologizes for Jeff's lie about not having anything to give them as a reward. 
She tells the group that she and Jeff are headed west since she once had family in the Kansas City area, and she's heard there might still be some of them there. She's managed to acquire a few things along the way to help them, but she figured she could con the raiders into leaving her be. She failed, obviously, and almost paid the price. She lifts a piece of the floor near her own mattress and pulls out a small tin. She hands it to the group and insists they take it. Doesn't matter how much they object, she tells them that they deserve something for the rounds they expended to save her. For the record, there are three caps for each player in the group in that tin. She'll tell the group that giving them the caps is worth it, and she will not take them back. If the group tries to give her something else in return, she will reluctantly take it, thank them, then gather her things and Jeff before leaving the deli. This leaves the group standing alone in an old deli with two dead bodies. They're obviously not going to want to stick around here for too long, so it's back out into the streets for them. By this point, they realize they'll want to start heading for their shelters, since being out after dark is probably not a smart idea. I mean, sure, they've got several hours before sundown, but they're tired and maybe still injured, so why take that chance? It might occur to the group that finding a place big enough for all of them to stay in would be a good idea. It might also occur to them that they're right across the street from an old tavern and restaurant. But we're going to leave that for next week since this is a good point to wrap up this week's build. Next week, we get the group set up with a base of operations. Then we get them out scavenging for more materials to make their lives a little bit better. In the meanwhile, I'd appreciate it if you check out our other show, Roleplaying History. This week, we'll do what we're calling Player 101. It's an episode devoted to what we believe are the best practices for gamers, and we hope you'll check it out. Roleplaying History is available wherever you get your podcasts or from our website, badgmproductions.net. All Fallout roleplaying game materials we reference in this podcast are the copyrighted property of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are used here for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in checking out more Fallout game stuff or any of Modifius's other fine products, check out their website, M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod, on Twitter at Bad GMP, YouTube and Tumblr, it's Bad GM Productions. You can email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com, and online the website badgmproductions.net. Before we wrap, I wanted to recognize we're knee-deep into the holiday season, no matter which holiday you celebrate or wherever you happen to be in the world. On behalf of the entire Bad GM family, may you and yours have a happy holiday. And with tomorrow being Christmas Eve for those who celebrate, which I do, I wanted to add a Merry Christmas to all of you. Next week, we continue our opening chapter of the new campaign. We'll get our group a compound and see what other kind of danger we can get them into. That's next week, though. So until then, I'm the Bad GM Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.